I tell everyone, the bottom line with the startup world, especially the venture-backed startup world, which has its own interesting sort of set of dynamics, is that the default outcome of a startup is to fail. It's very rare that startups fail. I mean, your achievement is remarkable because it is rare. And part of it is because you're an amazing entrepreneur. And part of it is you picked the right business and sold at the right time. And we all should be so lucky. Uh, I think that when it comes to entrepreneurship, you just got to understand you're taking at bats. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Slow Smoke Business Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Morgan, and today we're going to be talking a little bit of fast and a little bit of slow. For the slow part, we're actually going to be cooking some kebabs and some skewers. This is actually something that uh, I don't normally do. I haven't done this on the show yet, kebabs and skewers. Um, And it's going to go slow because we're cooking both beef and salmon on different ones. Uh, And so you sort of slow that down, make sure you don't overcook one or the other. We're going to do that slowly. And for the fast part, we've got Chris Yeh on the podcast. Now, Chris is the co-author of the very famous business book, Blitzscaling. Uh, He's also from the Blitzscaling, I believe it's the Blitzscaling Institute. And he's an author, he's an investor, he's a mentor, he's a great guy. Welcome, Chris, to the show. Jared, it is such a pleasure to be here. I just wish I could smell the smells of cooking because, alas, we are recording remotely. And these actually smell really good. It's a We've got a garlic pepper rub on the steak and then sort of a bourbon garlic glaze on the salmon. So we're going to get these on the grill. Are you able to see the grill cam okay? I can see the grill cam perfectly. And, you know, you're absolutely right about needing to be careful about these things. I do find it's hard to get uh, fish right, whether you're grilling or cooking or whatever mechanism. But it's so important to get just the right texture. You want that salmon so that it is just sort of melting in your mouth when you eat it. Come on. Did we just just become best friends? I like this. (laughs) I love, love, love food. And I am, again, so excited to be seeing this. Uh, I think the kebabs, I'm curious. The kebabs are beef kebabs, you were saying. Yeah, so I'll I'll hit it closer to the beef. So the beef kebabs, and we've got some kind of red and green peppers in there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um. I have to admit on this one, I cheated and got these from the store. So if you start asking exactly <laughs> what cut, if you start asking what cut of meat it was, I cannot tell a lie. I I, uh, I don't know, they were, but they look great, and uh, I wanted to do something a little different for the show today. So we'll let those go. I've got it down at two hundred. I'm actually going to take it up to about two seventy five, which will kind of cook them somewhat slow, but not too fast. And you were using a gas grill, is that right? So this is actually a pellet grill, and ah, I get a lot tra- of sort of pellet grill. Got yeah, it. Yeah. So uh, it's not a Traeger brand. I give uh, I get a lot of hate on this, you know, because barbecue purists. I'm from the South, and so people think you know you should be chucking wood logs in there and yeah. waking up at two a.m. and you know when you're running businesses and you're doing all sorts of things like you don't always have that time. So I love the pellet grills. They give you a great smoky flavor. You can control it, and uh, there's just not a lot of pomp and circumstance to getting it turned on. Absolutely. Well, you know, again, I. Don't even do much grilling myself. I must admit my primary cooking mechanism is the toaster oven, but those are actually pretty flexible. You can do a lot with those. Sure. Okay. So for uh, I gave a little intro in the beginning, but for those of you uh, that are listening and you're not familiar with Chris, I said Chris wrote a book called Blitzscaling. And um, he wrote that book with Reed Hoffman, the founder of LinkedIn. And um, it's such an interesting business concept. 
And what's going to make this episode really interesting is it's sort of the opposite of what we talk about on this show a lot. Um, you know, for those of you that know my story, I founded a company called Proctor U, and it was a slow climb that we had to go on. We were in the South. We couldn't attract the kind of investment that we were going to need to grow really quickly. And so we just had to kind of do it brick by brick and very aggressive, getting our name out there and kind of hitting the road and, and doing all the things we needed to do. Uh, and we got there, certainly. Um, but Chris has really studied the way that you can explode a company very quickly. So, um, Chris, why don't we back up and just tell them who you are and kind of how you got into understanding what blitzscaling is. Absolutely. So blitzscaling is really the apex or capstone, if you will, of a long career in the startup industry. So I was fortunate enough, I grew up in Southern California and then moved up north to go to school at Stanford. And this was during the dawn of the internet era. So I was in the first class where as a freshman, I could get an email address. That was a big deal. I was like, what is this? Electronic mail. Oh, wow. This is very convenient. And so when I graduated, I ended up going into the internet startup world. I did it with a company called D.E. Shaw & Company, which is best known as being the company that Jeff Bezos worked for before he left to start Amazon. Wow. I did not know Jeff. He had left 18 months before I got there. Otherwise, maybe my life would be different and much richer. But, <laughs> you know, that's okay. It was still a great experience. I worked on a couple of startup projects, got to experience my first IPO. But the thing about D.E. Shaw is it was very different. It was a secretive Wall Street hedge fund. I didn't have equity in that IPO, so I got to enjoy seeing the IPO, but I wasn't really a part of it. And I eventually realized, yeah, I want to understand a little bit more about the world of business. So I left D.E. Shaw, very good terms, and went to Harvard Business School and studied there. And instead of doing what is typical, which is to take an internship between our first and second year, I actually said, you know, this is 1999. This is a period of madness. I don't think there's ever going to be another time in history when venture capitalists are going to be dumb enough to give business school students money to start companies. <laughs> Admittedly, it took a long time, I would say, that it finally did happen again with the Web3 Web boom last year when people got really dumb. But we could talk about that later. <laughs> and instead, I wanted to start a company and sell it before I had to go back to school. Couldn't quite do it, but I did help run the company through school, raise money for it. Things were going well until the boom came to an end and the bust hit. And, you know, I was like, damn it, just not quite in time. That's actually in the offices of Morgan Stanley the day the stock market started crashing oh, because we were no. trying to figure out, hey, what are our strategic options? Can you sell us? Can you, can, we, can you take us public? Because, you know, having been launched for two months, it was time to go public. And so, unfortunately, it didn't work out. Um, but I, I did have a lot of great learning experiences out of it. And then I'd already caught the startup bug. So I stayed uh, in the startup world, had moved out to Silicon Valley and been there ever since. And, you know, after a decade and a half, started also chronicling it. I wrote blog posts and eventually my old friends, Reed Hoffman and Ben Kaznoka, asked me to work on books with them. And of course, not being an idiot, I said yes. Yeah, no big deal. Just casually knowing guys like Reed Hoffman. How, where did you meet Reed? How did, how did you come across him? Well, the way Reed and I met is that I was very interested in social networking in its very early stages. I'd been fascinated by the notion of connections and relationships and things like that for a long time. 
I even thought about creating my own startup during the first dot-com boom, which I didn't, fortunately, because obviously all of them failed. (laughs) (laughs) Reed even had a startup called SocialNet. That was his first social network that I was a member of way back when. I didn't know him then, but I was one of the people who actually signed up for his first failed startup. So our brains were thinking in, in many similar ways. And when the second wave of social networking companies came out, I became aware of them because of my friend Jonathan Abrams, the founder of Friendster. But I started following the industry. I saw LinkedIn. I said, this is the one for me because it's the one that reflects what I want to do, which is to stay in touch with people, especially people I know in a business context. Because I'm an old married professional guy by then, not a young person looking for dates or looking to go to Burning Man. So I saw the LinkedIn founders were Stanford alums as well. And I just reached out to them because I thought what they were doing was cool. And I supported them, gave them advice. I had an event for Harvard Business School alumni to convince them to sign up for LinkedIn. I did all these things because I believed fully in LinkedIn. And sadly, I was not at the time an angel investor. Otherwise, I probably would have invested and been much, much richer. But that's how I got to know Reed. And we stayed in touch since then. And then, like I said, in about 2011 or so, we started working on these various books and projects together. Wow. So, you know, that's what's interesting about, you know, we talk about your network on this show a lot and, and you know, where you sort of put yourself and who you connect yourself to. There's a lot of value in that. I do want to call out, though, uh, you know, we talked on this show a lot about failure and you're, you're name dropping some really, really impressive, successful guys. And every one of those guys had a failure in their rearview mirror before they got to the thing we're known for. Absolutely. You got it. And again, it is amazing. I, I, I tell everyone the bottom line with the startup world, especially the venture backed startup world, which has its own interesting sort of set of dynamics, is that the default outcome of a startup is to fail. Very rare that startups fail. I mean, your achievement is remarkable because it is rare. And part of it is because you're an amazing entrepreneur. And part of it is you picked the right business and sold at the right time. And we all should be so lucky. Uh, I think that when it comes to entrepreneurship, you just got to understand you're taking at bats. It's like being a baseball player. You're a fan of the Atlanta Braves. Oh, yeah. Got some amazing players on the Braves over the years. We stole one. I'm a Dodgers fan, so we stole your guy, Freddie. Very happy to have him. My God, he's an incredible player. He's great. That gets my stomach deterred when you talk about that. But go ahead. I still couldn't believe it. I was like, you got to be kidding me. You're not going to re-sign a guy who's like synonymous with the Braves, the most Mr. Brave since Chipper Jones. I just was horrified by that. Yeah. But as I was saying, uh, you know, when it, it comes to this, if you're a baseball player, you know, Freddie Freeman's batting like close to 330, which is incredible. It means he fails two thirds of the time. And if you were a, an entrepreneur and you batted 350, 330, you'd be incredible. If you were batting 200, you're still doing really well. Sure. So you just got to be willing to go through the failures in order to get to the success. Yeah. I don't think people latch onto that a whole lot. And there's this whole you know, concept of, well, you shouldn't quit. And I, I, I think people get, you know, stopped in this little trap of like what quitting looks like. And to me, quitting is giving up completely, but pivoting yes. or changing or, or understanding a problem more in a more nuanced way is not quitting, right? That's, that's keeping your eyes open to, to keep slamming your head against a wall uh, is, is stupid. Right. But if you, if you stop back and go, why is this wall here? Oh, if I go this way, there's no wall. Right. Um, that's not quitting. That's just opening your eyes and, and being smart. I had a failure of my own, uh, right before we started Proctor U, 
um, we uh, created a, a, an organization called Realtor Clicks, mm-hmm. and it's you have to kind of put your mindset back into like the 2005 timeframe. Uh, real estate listings were not listed online. It was a, kind of a walled garden. You, you, trying to get to see houses online was, was a more difficult thing. And so essentially what we built was Zillow. Uh, and we built it for a year and then we launched it. And then about six weeks later, Zillow and Trulia came out. Um, and just, there was just no oxygen left in, in the room yeah. for that kind of thing. But I learned a ton about that. We took too long. We didn't, um, we weren't positioned well enough to succeed there. I didn't have the proximity to the customer that I would when I started the proctoring company. Um, and we just didn't build quick enough what they really wanted. And then when somebody came in very well funded, you know, very well resourced and really kind of cracked the code a little bit better than we did, they were off to the races and we were left in the dust. Um, which actually brings me to blitzscaling uh, because that's an example of a company that didn't blitzscale and one that, that did. So tell me what, tell our, uh, our listeners what blitzscaling is. Absolutely. So the definition of blitzscaling is the pursuit of rapid growth by prioritizing speed over efficiency in the face of uncertainty. And that's a very specific definition. And it begs the interesting question, well, when are you going to do this? Because it sure sounds like prioritizing speed of efficiency in the face of uncertainty, that is risky. So why would you take on additional risk like that? And I think your own story illustrates it. The fact is the only reason to take on a risk like that is when the alternative is taking on even greater risk. And what we tell people is that if you are in a valuable winner-take-most market, that means that whoever gets to critical scale first, whoever gets all the oxygen, as you were saying, is going to be the one that wins that market. And ultimately, when you win a market that's a winner-take-most market, your competitors can't catch up and you can print money for decades. That's why companies like Amazon or an Apple are so phenomenally profitable and so phenomenally valuable. And it really boils down to, you know, what is the competitive situation? Are we going to be in a winner-take-most market? Who else is going out there? Because you, know, you mentioned Zillow and Trulia. You had a great idea with Realtor Clicks, right? It was the right thing to build. And if you didn't have competitors, you would have had time to figure out, okay, we need to refine this. We need to get closer to the customer. But the fact remains, once those guys came out, you either needed to raise a bunch of money and go head-to-head with them, or you needed to say, you look, I'm going to get a different business because this just isn't going to work. I cannot compete if it's a winner-take-most market and these people are already out in front and sprinting faster than I am. Yeah, and coincidentally, we got a, a cease and desist from the National Association of Realtors, and that was my first lesson in trademarks, that Realtor was a trademark name. We couldn't put that. So we were getting ready to have to rebrand. We're getting smoked, and so it was time to pivot into something else. Uh, and I had a day job at a university, and I saw the problem, and we kind of went, took the took the gang that built Realtor Clicks, and we started to push um, on ProctorU. But that's a, and that's an example of not quitting, but sort of understanding okay, we're not going to win this one, but taking, you know, taking your lumps and, and finding something where you do have proximity to your customer and you do have the opportunity to do something. Now, I would say where we got very fortunate was um, we understood the, the online testing market in a way that I think few people did. There was a couple of other companies in our space, but even the most well-funded competitor we had really only had about $2 million to work with. And I know mm. to some people that sounds like a ton of money, but in this 
scheme of things in a business, that's not a lot of money. And um, we were, we just started paddling upstream as hard as we could for several years. And eventually uh, we got to a place where we were big enough that even if you did come into the market with a lot of money, we were very hard to contend with at that point. Um, and so I think the concept of blitz scaling, the most critical part of that is obviously being able to raise enough capital. Uh, so let's talk about that for a second. How do you position yourself to go, A, that you're a business from nothing to this is something worth writing a big check to? And then how do you target the right kinds of people that may actually be interested in writing a check like that? So when it comes down to saying that you are truly blitz scale, well, we tell everyone, look, there's a bunch of things that you have to have in place, right? You need to have product market fit. That was something where you were struggling to get it with realtor clicks. You found it with Procter. You Once you had that, you were able to accelerate further, right? A lot of the paddling upstream was paddling to the point where the market recognizes this is something it wants. You need to have a big enough market, right? Proctoring is a great example. People have to do it, and especially if they move into an online world, especially if there's a global pandemic, it becomes highly, highly necessary. Sure, yeah. And you need to be able to make money off it, right? If your online proctoring solution did not allow you to actually charge money and make money, you're not going to be able to build much of a business. And of course, finally, you have to be able to scale up the organization, the operations itself. So those are all important things. But you'll notice you know, those things apply whether you're going to be blitz scaling or just growing a business. Like every good business needs to have those things. So the things that set the blitz scaling companies apart are that winner-take-most market dynamic and a go-to-market strategy that allows you to grow faster than the competition. Because at the end of the day, you have to grow faster than the competition. So if you want to raise money for blitzscaling, especially from some place like Blitzscaling Ventures, you have to convince us that you're tackling a valuable winner-take-most market. And you have to convince us that you have the go-to-market strategy that will allow you to win that market. Because just saying, give me a bunch of money and let me run ads, is not compelling. You know, there's a whole bunch of horror stories out there that I think a lot of people point to. Uh, when they when they think about a business that raises a lot of money really really fast, you start thinking about crazy stories like WeWork and all these other things. Or that's the more shiny one that people talk about. But then there's also uh, what was it Fast, which is another company mm-hmm. that's like a payment mm-hmm. click company, you know, um, that just blew a bunch of money and and went there. So it's certainly there's a lot of risk for the investor too when you when you blitz scale. And that's the interesting thing uh, about investors. And I know mainly Silicon Valley investors, but I've gotten to know investors all around the world. I've been saying because of the recent downturn in bear market, I've been saying venture capital is apparently the only industry where the philosophy is buy high, sell low. Because all people, <laughs> all these people who are very eager to shovel money out the door nine months ago are all of a sudden clamming up and saying, oh, I don't know. Uh, I'm not sure about investing. And I'm like, well, aren't the prices, you know, lower than they were. It seems like this is the time to deploy capital. So it can be a challenge. Uh, The other thing, the other challenge, of course, for raising money from venture capitalists is that they have all sorts of biases. I mean, I'd say that it's actually getting better. Uh, Before the pandemic, you notoriously hear Silicon Valley venture capitalists saying, well, I'm not going to invest in a place if it's more than 15 miles away. I mean, (laughs) I don't want to be in a car all the time and I got to be able to see them. And because of the pandemic, everyone realized that was a bunch of bullshit. That was just convenience. And now venture capitalists are looking at deals all over the world. Again, they're still going to favor the ones where they can see people face-to-face. Obviously, you know, uh, you and I, if we were face-to-face eating barbecue together, that would facilitate things even more than being on Zoom. 
But being on Zoom has been good enough for a lot of things. So I think that there's more possibilities of raising money these days than there were before the pandemic, something we can actually thank the pandemic for. Yeah, the pandemic has changed a lot of stuff. Let's actually get a grill check while we're talking. Ooh, the pandemic yes. has, has changed a lot of the way things go. Oh, we're progressing nicely here. I imagine the salmon's going to cook faster than the beef, right? It is. Uh, and we're going to try to take that to... I'll have to check what the temperature is on that real quick. Ooh, we're close. Oh, we might almost be done. This may be the first episode where you actually uh, you actually see me eat something while we're... That would be very cool. Fish is very delicate. Uh, you yeah. want to take it out. You don't want to overcook. So I think we actually are done here. This is up to, yeah, 150. We don't want to take that any higher than that. Okay. We're going to let the, uh, we're gonna let the beef keep going a little bit. But let's get it off of there. This is, uh, like I said, this is new territory. We don't normally do that. <laughs> Good. I feel like I'm a pioneer here. So you've, you, you did the Blitzscaling book. Talk to me yeah. about what happened afterwards. You've now got Blitzscaling Ventures. You've got train. Is it training that people can go to? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, with Blitzscaling, of course, you write a book and you hope it's going to be the kind of book that gets out there into the world and has influence. And of course, one of the things we deliberately did is we created a new word, because if you create a new word, you can tell if people are talking about it or not. Really helpful. And, you know, it really has exceeded our expectations. Obviously, I think it was well-timed. It also helped that we had things like Reed's Masters of Scale podcast, which helped really drive attention towards scaling as well. Uh, and so then the question became, well, what else do we do? Now, as an author, you know, there's some pretty typical things to do. And the typical thing to do is, well, now people will want you to come and speak at their conference or at their university or what have you. And I do a fair amount of that. Uh, I just went in August to Bangkok and also to Brazil, Sao Paulo and Florianopolis to speak wow. at various events. Great way to get a chance to see the world. And you know, these are places I've never been before and just amazing, amazing experiences. But, you know, that is something where my wife's like, yeah, that sounds great. You know, you got to stay home now and then. And so the question becomes, well, what other things can you do as an author? And it just so happened that with Blitzscaling Ventures, uh, I've met uh, my one of my partners, Scott Johnson, who told who saw me speak and said, "Hey, I think we could build a venture firm around these ideas." And so we decided to create Blitzscaling Ventures to invest in the most blitzscalable companies that have been backed by the best VCs. But since that is a tiny number of people, we want to keep spreading the ideas. We also created the Blitzscaling Academy which is online courses and community for people who want to blitzscale. So we have the ability to come in. And if you like the book and you really want to go in greater depth into different topics, you can come into Blitzscaling Academy, pay a little bit of money per month and be able to access all that as well, plus other students like you. By the way, if, if, if the people that are listening, if you haven't checked out that book and you're trying to grow a business, you have to check it out. We, we focused on kind of the main ideas, but there's all sorts of good stuff in there about gross margin and kind of how that plays into scaling and everything too. Um, so definitely check that book out. I will say as an entrepreneur, I'm, I'm trying to imagine having a startup and walking into the room with the blitzscaling crew and being like, holy shit, I better have my <laughs> I better have my stuff dialed in and really know. But then again, on the other hand, there's like a blueprint out there in a book that you could just read the book and come in and probably hit some of the high points, right? And uh, and kind of know the model you guys are, are looking for. So what, what an interesting um, thing. How many different uh, organizations or how many different uh, investments have you guys made so far? So we're a relatively new fund. We got started in, officially and legally in 2021. 
So we've made, we like to say, six and a half investments so far. Uh, we typically invest a million dollars into a company okay. because that is an amount of money that is enough to make a difference for us financially, but it's small enough to be able to fit into the various rounds and cap tables that are out there. Because the bottom line is we want to be a part of a syndicate. We don't want to lead a deal because, you know, frankly, there's people out there, my various friends at Greylock and other companies like Sequoia and Excel, they're very good at leading deals. I don't want to compete with them. I want to help them. And so we keep our check size small so we can play nice with everyone. And in one case, there was so much demand for a particular company that we can only get half a million in. But, you know, we took it because it's a great company. They've done a significant up round since then post market crash. So we're very happy about that one. Excellent. So what's next for Chris? I mean, you've got all these different things. You've got this, this, this venture group that's growing. What's the next step for, for what you're doing? Well, frankly, it's more of the same, which is how do we just invest in the greatest entrepreneurs in the world? I mean, I wake up every morning and I am excited because I have this incredible life that's set up for me where I get to talk to some of the smartest, most ambitious people in the world, help them have an impact. I would say that I also do a lot of volunteer activity. So for example, last week I was just with the Unreasonable Group, which is a social impact accelerator working with entrepreneurs who are cleaning up our water and producing clean power and making meat from mushrooms and all sorts of other amazing things. So I would say that being able to spend more time on what David Brooks called the second mountain, right? The legacy, uh, being able to help other people is a big part of what I want to do. But the fact remains, you know, it's still the same kinds of things. Meet amazing, interesting, intelligent, ambitious, capable people and help them do interesting, amazing things. So interesting and intelligent probably doesn't usually coincide with a guy who's like holding a, a, a skewer of salmon on a podcast, but we'll, I'll, I'll just pretend like you were talking about us. But, you know, oh, by the way, I'm going to try this. Yes, please tell me what you think. That's actually pretty good. That's a, you said it was a bourbon marinade? You know, I thought it was bourbon. I don't taste bourbon. <laughs> mm. Mostly garlic and um, kind of salty and briny on the outside. Really good. I haven't done salmon skewers, I think, maybe ever. So that's pretty good. I'm trying to eat a little healthier now. You know, you, you run a barbecue podcast, you tend to like, I don't know, the first couple episodes, it was like a lot of sausage and pork. And I was like, man, I better <laughs> I better mix some chicken and fish in here. I'm going to be you know, the 800-pound uh, podcast host, if I'm not careful. Well, i got to hook you up with one of my portfolio companies. Uh, this is not fro fro through the firm, but just a personal investment. There's a company called Next Gen Foods out of Singapore that makes something called Tyndall, which is a plant-based chicken substitute. It's the best one I've had. I wouldn't invest until I actually tasted the stuff. But what's interesting about it is they don't give it to you in like preformed and pre-breaded patties. It's not some sort of frozen food that you just cook and it's done in a certain way. They sell directly to chefs and they sell the material ready to go. And so the chefs decide what they're going to marinate in, what they're going to bread it with, oh, how wow. they're going to maybe even sometimes mix in things so that you can have you know pesto throughout or other things like that. And if we could get you some of this food product to grill and barbecue because it stands up to the grill without a problem. Skewers, we had a number of chefs make skewers and kebabs with it. So I think this is something that could be great for a little extra health for you and you know, hopefully getting you onto that plant-based diet 
barbecue side. Let's do, uh, yeah, nothing says that you can't throw some plants on the grill, too. And let's get that going. I'd love to have uh, whoever started that company get them to tell their story, too. Absolutely. So if you're talking to someone who is at the beginning of their journey, I try to ask most of my guests this this question. If you're talking to someone who's at the beginning of their journey, they have an idea, they think they see a market opportunity, they think they have the resources, they have the ability, they have the drive. What would you say to them if they're just getting started and they're thinking to themselves, how am I going to do this? How am I going to pull together the resources? How am I going to see this through? Got it. I think that there are three pieces of advice I'd give them. The first piece of advice is to stick close to the customers. Always return back to what's going on with the customers. And you had this with ProctorU. You understood the customer base because you had done some of it yourself at the university. And it is very easy to get caught up in the labels that we put on our businesses and our products and things like that. But at the end of the day, it's individual people deciding to use something. And either they get value out of it or they don't. And staying close to the customer experience and understanding what they actually care about that is the key. And when you do that, naturally that you're able to then tell investors, Here, here's why we're going to win. Or naturally you're able to tell your employees, here's why we're having an impact. So I think staying close to what's actually happening with the product and the customer is point number one. Point number two is, and this is something a lot of folks overlook, as you're starting off on this, it is really hard to be an entrepreneur. I mean, it is astonishingly hard to be an entrepreneur. And you are going to have to not only go and do all this insane amount of work, you're also going to have to be the emotional dynamo for your organization. Your people are going to feed off you and it's going to be incumbent on you to be putting positive energy out there, to be the enthusiastic one, to do all these different things, which are really, really hard. And then you've got people in your life who love you. Obviously, you can have loved ones, a spouse, parents, children, who knows, all sorts of folks. But they can only go so far. I always tell entrepreneurs, hey, your parents love you. But if you go to them and say, let me tell you about this crazy situation. The the VC wants this allocation. The two pro ratas conflict. And I'm not sure what to do. They'll say, we love you, Jared. But how much useful advice are they going to be able to give you? How much are you going to feel like they understood it? The unconditional love is one thing. But the actual understanding of the situation is another. So I always encourage entrepreneurs to find peers that they can trust, people who are doing the same thing that they're doing. So that every once in a while, it doesn't have to be every week, might even be every month or two, you're able to get together with people who understand where you're coming from. And sometimes it's just helpful to be able to to talk about the things you're going through. And of course, sometimes they'll have great advice or connections for you. And sometimes you'll just talk. Either way, it is a long journey being an entrepreneur. And especially if you don't have a co-founder you can do that with, you've got to find peers. And I encourage you to find your tribe, your community of people around you. The final thought is, especially for early on, it's very difficult to let go sometimes. And whether that is of lessons that you've learned or whether that is of the work that you're doing, it's difficult to let go. But as an entrepreneur, I always tell entrepreneurs, you are probably better at almost everything in your company than every other employee you have. You're smart. You're talented. You're the one who managed to pull everyone together and get this going, and the other people didn't. There's a reason they're working for you. However, even though you can do everything better than those other folks, and again, entrepreneurs are like, oh, you don't have to be modest with me. I've been there. 
So I say, even though you're better than everyone else at all these things, there's only one of you and there's a lot more of them. And the only way to have an impact on this world is to let go, to let other people pick up the work, to take on the task. And even if they do it differently than you would, even if you do it worse than you would, it is better that they do it than that you take it on and add it to your never-ending list of things to do. And so letting go, which is especially hard because, you know, the early days being a bootstrapped entrepreneur, you do everything and that is the right thing to do. But guess what? You get further along, it isn't. Learn to let go. That's so good. That is so good. So many people struggle with that, the ability to figure out how to work through somebody instead of doing it for yourself. And, you know, we talked about this a couple episodes ago. If you find yourself working too much in your business, you're never going to be able to work on your business, right? You're never going to be able to do the things where you're looking out over the hood of the car and figuring out where you're going, anticipating five steps ahead and doing all the things that it takes, not just to have your business have the gears turn every day, but actually try to grow it. And I, I, that's so good. So the last thing I want to ask you, um, and this is a this is a question I think you are uniquely qualified to look at. I'm going to check the grill one more time because we got the, yes, the beef is done. Ooh, Nice. Yes. So before I ask it, I'm going to tell a quick story of my side, and then I want to get your take on this. So when uh, when we started out, that's pretty good looking right there. Oh, yeah. Got a good carbonization, a little good, good bark, good crisp. Going to mm. sneak a little uh, going to sneak a little vegetables in there, too. It's pretty nice. So when we started out, um, I don't obviously blitz scaling wasn't a thing back then, but but had it had it been, we would have done something similarly if we could have raised the capital to do that. We were unable to do that. And, and when we were unable to do that, it, for a variety of reasons, we, we didn't look like, you know, something people put lots of money into. We were in Alabama and we were in this sort of weird niche section of education. Um, but we, we, had a, we had a notion that we were onto something. And so I spent a lot of time talking to entrepreneurs, excuse me, talking to investors. And I found that a lot of the guys didn't get it and we got a lot of no's. Uh, And there was one no in particular, um, it was a VC firm in Chicago that um, actually was getting ready to send us a term sheet. They were going to put $2 million into this little startup that we had. And uh, at the last minute, they backed out. They said, you know what? I just don't see enough traction. I don't think this is going to be a business. Um, And so best of luck to you guys. We'll stay in touch with you. Now, had they made that uh, investment, that $2 million would have been worth probably a quarter billion about 11 years later. Um, But so that's the kind of stuff that motivates me. Mm -hmm. But it's very hard as an entrepreneur when you hear a no from people who you respect and who are smart and you see they've had successes and you walk in and you hear no. So how would you advise somebody to deal with hearing no from an investor or hearing no from lots of investors? Because you're inevitably going to hear that before you finally get to a yes. That's right. So I think that there's two things to keep in mind. And one is pretty standard advice and the other is a little more esoteric, but I think is useful to keep in mind. The first is that it doesn't matter how many no's you get as long as you get a yes. (laughs) And the fact is that once you get that yes, everything changes. You did eventually get a yes and the person who gave you that yes is very happy that they gave you that yes. So it works out in the end as long as you get to that yes. And 
you know, the difficult part, of course, is it's difficult to know whether the 51st meeting is going to result in a yes or whether it's going to result in a no. And you're never going to get that yes. And that's where, you know, trying to figure out when you're going to quit or not comes in handy. This is where the second piece of advice comes. Uh, when I was over in Bangkok recently, I learned an interesting term from somebody who is a psychologist and studies entrepreneurs and business. And she said, you know, there's a distinction between what we call internal reference and external reference. So internal reference is the decision you make for yourself. And external reference is reputation, what other people say. And in the case of a startup, all those, entre- all those investors saying, no, that's external reference. And you think to yourself, wow, they're really smart. And what do they see that I don't see? And the fact remains, it's tough to ignore external reference. And you should take that into account. If every single person says no, try to figure out whether you think what they're doing is valid or not. But at the end of the day, the internal reference is what matters. And that is a question of, do I believe in my own investment thesis? Do I have evidence that I'm right? Because there's a lot of people in this world who get something fundamentally right and the rest of the world says no. I mean, there's the old story, many people have told it in various books about uh, the great uh, Ignaz Semmelweis who said, hey, you know, maybe the reason why everyone dies in our maternity wards is the doctors don't wash their friggin' hands between delivering babies. And what if we washed our hands? And he was uh, ostracized by the medical community, died obscure, and, and had basically his career and life ruined. But he was right. And then all those other guys who screwed up his life were wrong. Now, I'm trying not to like tell people yes. And it's okay to be right even if you're never recognized in your lifetime. No, you want to be recognized in your lifetime. You want to have success in all those good things. And uh, again, as you saw, Proctor U, if you said, hey, I was right about Proctor U, and I was proven right 25 years after I passed away, you would find that unsatisfying. That's <laughs> for sure. <laughs> but the fact remains, if you know you're right, if you have the evidence and you've examined it, internal reference is more important than external reference. I don't care what these people are saying. They're wrong all the time. They're just very good at burying their failures. Rest assured, every one of these brilliant investors gets it wrong 90% of the time. So the fact that they told you it wasn't going to work, hey, Listen to what they say, examine it for yourself, make your own decisions. But I don't care if a hundred people tell me something's dumb. If I know it's the right thing to do, I'm going to do it. That's so good. Yeah, I used to, I had some mentors early in my journey that would tell me, um, if somebody told us no, they would say, well, do you know you're right? And we'd say yes. And then they would say, well, how do you know you're right? And that how do you know you're right? It's 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 that mental, you know, gymnastics that you need to do to sort of figure out like, Okay, I believe in this, but why am I right? Why? Why? And you, it makes you, it forces you to pull back from emotion and find empirical data and things you can point to and, and trends and things that you see that maybe these other people aren't plugging into. But you're right to say you don't completely um, write off somebody that tells you no. Listen to why they said that. The guys that turned me down in Chicago um, at the time, you know, we were we were showing this like hockey stick chart of how we were going to grow and uh you know going to get to millions of exams a year that we were going to do and we were currently doing 700 exams a month and they just couldn't get over that right they were like i don't know i i you know and so they were really going to need to dig in to understand and they just weren't willing to do that but we did eventually get there um and i think it took us 
realizing, now nah, we're on to something. There are people that are buying our service. There are people that are coming to us and asking uh, for more. And there are people that are iterate, helping us iterate on it you know, with suggestions and things. There's a community that's building around it. We're on to something. We just have to keep pushing through. And I think hearing no, we talk, we've talked a lot on this show about hearing no from customers and potential customers, but it's that hearing no from smart people that you, you're wanting to sort of join your journey um, that you can, you, it can be hard to recover from. So I really appreciate your perspective on that. My pleasure. And obviously in your case, you persisted throughout and again, they regret it and you're happy. So look who's laughing in the end. <laughs> so let's let's summarize. I want you to feel free to tell me I'm wrong here, but I'm mm-hmm. going to try to summarize the great sort of slow smoked versus blitz scaling the two different uh, mindsets. For me, um, I would have been thrilled to blitz scale my business when I started it, uh, but just wasn't given that opportunity. And it could have been uh, because of where we were. I mean, we were in an Alabama company, and people were sort of like mm, scratching their heads. You guess this guy got all his teeth, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, which by the way, I know you've actually, you actually, uh, work with people in Alabama now. Good companies do come out of the South and certainly do come out of Alabama. They can come from anywhere. Um, so when that opportunity didn't present itself, we went with a slow smoke thing that I feel like most people can do, which is one foot in front of the other, focus on profitability, focus on your customer, focus on growth every step of the way. Don't try to be perfect. Make, I always say it's better to be a progressionist than a perfectionist. Just keep getting better. Keep making progress. And at some point, you know, you, you hopefully meet uh, like a critical mass where you, you've gotten to scale a different way. The blitzscaling way is if you are able to get into the right circles and when, you're, when that opportunity presents itself and it's the right type of business and it's the right type of market, that is the kind of growth mindset that can change worlds because it can get faster, very, very, get fat, excuse me, get big, very, very fast um, and really take over markets and make a lot of change. What would you say differently in, in that argument about the two different mindsets? No, I think it's absolutely correct. And I think the thing is that a company might benefit from both of those different mindsets at different times in its history. So one of the things that people don't talk about a lot with Blitzscaling is we explicitly say in Blitzscaling, hey, there is a period of time before you Blitzscale when traditional bootstrapping and keeping the burn down, all that makes a ton of sense. If you try to Blitzscale right from the start, you have the idea, you're like, okay, great. Uh, I have the idea. Maybe I'm a famous entrepreneur. I can raise $100 million or $500 million. Not clear to me that your chances of success are actually higher as a result because you're going to go out there and start spending money when you really should be still following the practices of the lean startup and experimenting and trying to learn. And we, in the book, explicitly say, hey, listen, you know, you should be following this lean startup approach. You should really try to figure out your way to product market fit. But that's not our book, so we're going to talk a lot about it. Go look at those <laughs> other books. Uh, but the nuance here is it always boils down to the competitive landscape. So one of the things I like to say, which is especially true now that we're in a bear market, is that blitzscaling is relative and contextual. It's relative to the competition because the goal is to grow faster than the competitors, not at a specific numerical target. And it's contextual because the context matters, right? Being in Alabama and having you know difficulty accessing in- investors matters. You, If you sat back and said, you know what, we're going to focus everything on fundraising, you wouldn't be where you are today. The context does matter. But, and this is the big but, 
that can always change, right? When your company got to the point where you had great traction and then this pandemic hits and all of a sudden you're going to 10X in a single year or 20X in a single year because everyone's got to do online, uh, online examinations now and everyone needs proctoring. That is a time for blitzscaling. That's a time where you're, we're probably saying, hey, we got to go ahead and focus on speed here. We've got to get up and running. How are we going to 10X or 20X or volume in the next two months? I don't know. But we've got to figure it out, even if it's not the most efficient way, even if we have to throw some stuff out later on. And so blitzscaling is just a tool. And it's a tool that is useful at different points in a company's lifetime. And I think in your case, it would have been a terrible thing for you up front. But because you were dealing with a market and a context where your competitors were smaller than you were, you were steadily paddling upstream, you were moving ahead of them, you were still improving your competitive position such that when the pandemic came, when all the conditions changed, and it was time to blitz scale, you had that leadership position and you had the ability to go out there, make it happen, and ultimately get a fantastic outcome. You know, what it forced us to do was, you know, to quote, I don't know who said it first, but I've, I've heard Joe Rogan say it. I've heard a bunch of other people. You had to be undeniable, right? If we didn't have this big backing coming in early on, we had to be undeniably good mm -hmm. in the eyes of our customers. We had to be undeniable in that we were going to work harder. We were going to show up first, leave, be the last one to leave, um, you know, figure out things, do the hard work. And once you do that, you sort of, you get to a place and then you sort of realize that's something that you probably should do, whether you're blitz scaling, going the slow smoke route or whatever. You need to be, you need to have those habits and be undeniable because that's what's going to make you successful whether you've got lots of resources or you're bootstrapping your way to the top. Absolutely. Be so good they can't ignore you. That's something that Steve Martin said. I think Cal Newport said as well. I'm sure there are other people in the past. But it is absolutely the case that the number one thing that's going to get an investor to say yes to what you're doing is obvious success, traction, customers who love you. If you have those things, in the end, of course, things like connections and all that, that always helps a lot. The world is unfair. But... What's more important is to have an amazing business. And if you have an amazing business, you'll find a way to finance it. Chris, you are such a joy to talk to. I, I really appreciate having you here. If uh, some of our listeners would like to connect with you further or connect to kind of the Blitzscaling universe, where can they find you? Well, where you can go to find all things Chris Ye is chrisye.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-Y-E-H.com. Last name is spelled Y-E-H as in yellow elephant house. Now that will be fixed in your mind. You'll never forget it. <laughs> and within the Blitzscaling realm, of course, you can find the book Blitzscaling everywhere you look. And you can go find links to those bookstores at blitzscaling.com. That's just B-L-I-T-Z-S-C-A-L-I-N-G.com. And if you are interested in learning more about Blitzscaling, you can also visit Blitzscaling Academy. And that's just blitzscalingacademy.com. If you want to learn more about the investing that I'm doing, you can look at blitzscalingventures.com or blitzscalingvc.com for people who don't like to tap out the full name. And other than that, you can find me on social media. In most places, I'm just available as Chris Ye. And you can find me on Twitter. You can find me on Facebook. You can find me on LinkedIn. I'm just around everywhere. Not a lot of free time is what I'm hearing from you. Like, <laughs> doing a lot of work these days. And I believe you teach at Stanford. Is that right? Yeah. So I teach at Stanford from time to time. Just did a guest lecture a couple of weeks ago. It's always good to see the old alma mater. And hopefully, I'll be doing more of that in the future as well. That's so cool. Chris, thank you so much for being here. It was a pleasure to have you. Jared, truly a pleasure. Now what we got to do is the next time I come out to visit Birmingham, Alabama, I'm going to come on down a little bit further south and see you and eat some of this barbecue. 
There we go, Chris. Uh, into the show. I think the beef turned out probably better than the salmon did. Honestly. Mm. You know, salmon skewers make the salmon get a little dry, I think. Or at least in my opinion. Whereas uh, I think beef kind of lends itself to that. So let's let's see if I can't eat this without looking like a schmuck. That's not easy. Oh, I love mm. the way the microphone picked up the sound of the bite. Ooh, oh, that's man. So good. That is uh, that is very well seasoned. It's excellent. So you get the smoky flavor from the pellet grill. You get a little bit of the pepper. Oh man, perfect medium, medium rare. Oh yeah, I'm gonna be out of office for the next 45 minutes. That's for sure. Man, I wish I could be there. For sure. And if you guys enjoyed the show, please make sure that you follow us, subscribe, look for us on social media at Slow Smoke Business on TikTok, Facebook. We're all over the place. And give us a five-star rating if you like the show. Thank you so much for being here, Chris, and we'll see you guys next time. My pleasure, Jared, and thank you, everyone, for having me on.